change. The sermon series that we're going to be moving into over the next several weeks is entitled Change. Some change is subtle. Some is seismic. Some changes seem subtle at the beginning, but they become seismic at the end. But there are those that are seismic from the beginning. Nineteen years ago, this coming Wednesday, is 9-11. It's where our country was forever changed. Having been someone who had lived in New Jersey and had been in the towers innumerable times, to see those come down was breathtaking. As a matter of fact, for my generation, that's the conversation where people say, where were you when? And then 9-11's mentioned. What I do know is the ripple effect of that has been felt all over the world. It was a seismic change. I'm going to ask that you would please join me in prayer. As we pray for our nation, and as you know, even though it was almost 20 years ago, there are families and individuals that are still struggling because of that day. And as you know, a spirit of fear injected itself into our nation. Would you please pray with me? God, we come to you now and we pray that you would be this God who brings peace and brings strength and brings your constant love into the midst of this coming week. I pray for those of us that were fundamentally changed from that day. I pray that in the midst of that, that somehow, some way, we would come to believe that you are a God who is in all and through all. Lord Jesus, now we pray as we step into this week that it'll be the 19th anniversary. We're asking in the name of Jesus Christ that your peace and your strength would touch hearts and touch lives, and that you would be true to your word where you declare you are close to those who mourn. God, now I do ask you that in our time together here, as we look at change, that you would help us to be men and women whose hearts are truly open to you, to the very depths of our souls. And we believe for this and we pray for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. What I am keenly aware of is that the biblical reading that we're going to have this morning is a very odd place to begin for a sermon series on change. I'm not going to apologize for that, though, because I felt so distinctly drawn to it. The title of my sermon this morning is this, Change, the Ethiopian Eunuch. Not a single person sitting here would have ever dreamt that this would be the sermon title for the beginning of the sermon series on change. Yet, if you know the scriptures, some of you do, some don't, you would know that the Ethiopian eunuch is found in the book of Acts. That book was written by Dr. Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also writes the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is all about change. It's about how God still chooses, even after the Older Testament, that God with his love and with his grace still chooses to use people plus the power of the Holy Spirit 
to transform them and then transform culture. It's incredible to me. If I were God and I had read the Older Testament, I would say, I think we need to figure out a new pattern. Let's use something else. But no, God does not. As a matter of fact, God uses more people and different kinds of people than he ever has before. And ultimately, that's what the book of Acts is about. It's about people. It's about the Holy Spirit and the actions and the change and the transformation that happens. Here's what I'm convinced of. A person who is filled with the Holy Spirit is changed and will always bring change. I believe that. That's one of the reasons why we have what we call Sunday evening vigils, and we have one tonight. We began them last month, where two Sunday evenings a month, we will gather together at City Church Central on Ryle Road for the express purpose of seeing people in the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit, with the fruits of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit moving in and through our lives. Because honestly, that is what carries the entire Newer Testament. It's Jesus dead, buried, resurrected, the day of Pentecost, and then his ascension and the Holy Spirit is sent. So I want to encourage you this sermon series on change is going to begin right here and now in the sense of this, your life and the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have a clue what God is capable of accomplishing in you as he transforms you and through you as you are transformed. As we get ready to read from Acts chapter 8, I always give the context and the emotional arc of where we are in the Bible. Acts 8.1, the introduction to our chapter begins with this sentence. And Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, but and Saul approved of their killing him. What a way to start a chapter. That hymn is Stephen, one of the disciples who has been stoned to death for his faith. The context and the emotional arc towards our story moves a little bit deeper because in Acts chapter 8, verses 2 through 4, it tells us this, that an incredible persecution broke out against the church and that persecution caused the Christians who had been huddling down in Jerusalem to be scattered all over the known world. But in the midst of that scattering, those passages tell us that as they went... They shared the good news of Jesus. I want to say this before we move on. I want to say it carefully. For those who've been taught or you've heard preached a prosperity gospel, that Jesus came into this world to make you rich and happy, that is an adulteration of the gospel. It's false. What I see in the Newer Testament is real life, real change. And if the change you can get can happen without Jesus, you don't need him for it. And prosperity is not something you need God for. I know of plenty of people who are living the American dream to the fullest, and they have zero thoughts of God. Jesus did not come into the world to give us the American dream. 
He came into this world to transform us through the incredible message of him taking on our sin, him dead, buried, resurrected, and now there's a whole new life that is available, and you don't have to wait to heaven to get it. It's available now. Now in this, what we discover is a persecution breaks out against the church. And in that moment, if they had believed in a prosperity gospel, they would have all been out. It was anything but prosperous. It's called persecution. And what we discover is, is that as as these people begin to move, there's a new character that enters stage left into the book of Acts. He's a guy named Philip. He's a guy named Philip. Philip is announced as one of the seven. He's this guy that the Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 6 is an individual who's full of the Holy Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit again, and wisdom. And you know what his calling is to do? It's to distribute food to widows. It's where he starts. It's not real glamorous, but it's essential. It's like serving with set up or tear down or serving in our children's ministry. He's just been called upon. He has a unique skill set. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is serving. And then what we discover is, the next time we see Philip is Acts chapter 8. You know what he's doing? He's preaching. Somehow he goes from handing out food to widows to now he is pastoring. It's stunning. Again, what can God do with a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit and being transformed by the Holy Spirit? What can God do? You have no clue. But here's what I want to challenge you with. Philip begins simply by serving, and before you know it, it's clear that he is pastoring, he's preaching, and he's in a region called Samaria where Jews would never go, and while he's there, the power of the Holy Spirit is using him, people are being healed, hundreds are coming to faith, and he is a full-fledged pastor. Now, I want to challenge you. Some of you, God will call to be a pastor. Some of you are thinking, not me. I would challenge that. I want to be honest with you, in my industry, the average age of a pastor is the upper 60s. There's very few people in the pipeline to pastor churches. Very few. There's many reasons of it, one of the greatest of which is our culture no longer looks at being a pastor in a favorable way. I want to tell you, they didn't in the book of Acts either. But what I wanted to say is this, is that some of us during this change series, I believe because I've been praying that God's going to call men and women into pastoral ministry. I'm going to pray for that. Some of us here sense a certain direction. Can you imagine Philip and how blown his mind was? And he said, all I did was sign up to distribute food. That's all I did. Then God does something, and he takes that little beginning commitment, and he uses it to turn him into someone who is a key figure in the first century church. As a matter of fact, the last time we see Philip in the book of Acts, 
is in Acts 21, verses 8 through 10. Here's what it tells us. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is recounting his missionary journey, and here's what he says, Acts 21, 8 through 10. He says, we reached Caesarea and we stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. It goes on in verse 9 to say this, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Isn't that something? What we discover is, here's Philip, he's pastoring, and he has four daughters that are being used by God in the church, and all four are single. Let that be a challenge. You do not have to be married to be used by God. You don't. Also, ladies, this is a clear clarion call in the book of Acts that anyone, male or female, can hold a position in a church to preach the gospel and to be used by him. This isn't just about men. It's a brand new move of God where the Older Testament prophecies are being fulfilled where it will be about men and women that will carry the kingdom of God. And here you see four of them. Philip is pastoring in Caesarea. And he has four daughters who prophesy, and they're unmarried. God's using them. Now, I know there's some young guys sitting here going, I know why those women were unmarried. It's because they prophesy. They can read every man's mail that walks up to them. And who would want to date a woman like that, right? I don't want a woman that looks at me and can prophesy and knows where I've been and what I've done. Maybe that's why they're single. We're going to come back to singleness in a few moments, by the way. So here's what we have. We have Philip now, and we're moving into Acts chapter 8 where we're going to read. But if you read prior in Acts 8, you know that Philip's being used mightily by God. He's there in Samaria. God is moving with his power, and Philip is at the center of it. And out of nowhere, it tells us that he is taken by God from the midst of a revival, every pastor's dream. And suddenly, God grabs him, and an angel tells him to wander out into the desert and wait by an intersection. You know why an angel had to be sent? Because he wouldn't have left otherwise. God was on the move. It was visible. It was tangible. Yet God shows up and says, Philip, I'm calling you. Calling you to go here. And what's stunning is God calls him to leave that huge revival for one person. Just one. Who is it? Let's read together in Acts chapter 8, verses 25 to 39. Let's read. Philip and the Ethiopian. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go to the south road, the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem in worship and to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet, and the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. 
Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in his limousine. That's not what the gospel says, but that's what's happening. You see, this is a wealthy, powerful man. He's riding in a chariot, and even the liberal Bible scholars will tell you it was undoubtedly that he is traveling with a massive entourage. He's not alone. A chariot is a sign of wealth. So is the fact that he'll be reading, and we're going to read this next, from the book of Isaiah. If he owns one of the scrolls, if he owns the Torah, he's a wealthy man. So picking it up, it tells us that Philip comes in and he sits next to him in the limousine, and then here's what it says. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. It's this, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, tell me please. In the original language, he is begging. Please, Philip, tell me, tell me, tell me. Who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. My theory is, in verse 39, why was he taken up and kind of moved to another place? It was simple. He had ridden in the chariot a long way, and to walk all that way home would have been brutal. So God just transports him, because he had just done a good thing. Now, here's what we know. When we talk about change, we have to know this that the Ethiopian eunuch had gone 1,500 miles from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. Why would he go? He would go there because that's where you go to pray and worship. You see, in the time of Jesus, God's Spirit dwells in the temple in Jerusalem. And so people make these long pilgrimages to come and to pray and to worship. And if you look in the Older Testament, you would discover when they pray, they pray out loud. And when they worship, they worship and pray out loud. This man has gone 1,500 miles to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship, and now he's heading home. Again, he's wealthy. We know how he got his wealth. The Bible says he was a eunuch, that he was the assistant to the queen of Ethiopia. He was over all of his treasury. What it means is, as a eunuch, he was sexless. He was derailed of all passion, 
so he could be single-focused and single-minded. Notice who he attends to, the queen. A eunuch is no threat to the queen or the king's harem. He's a sexless man. Plutarch tells us that eunuchs were common. Josephus, the ancient historian, tells us that Herod, who was the puppet king of Rome, who was Jewish over Israel, over Jerusalem at the time, he had three eunuchs in his temple court, and it was a huge frustration to the Jews. When you talk about eunuchs, Jesus mentions them. It's very fascinating. But in Matthew 19, 12, Jesus mentioned eunuchs, and I want you to hear what he says. He says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. I don't know if you caught that, but Jesus is cutting against the grain of the spiritual history of the Older Testament. He is announcing that in his kingdom, there will be people who are single, and in their singleness, there will be no shame at all. In their singleness, they will choose to live sexually like eunuchs. They will live pure lives, and they will be fundamentally committed to the kingdom of heaven. That will be their sole focus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the apostle Paul challenges with the same challenge that we all ought to consider singleness before we're married and ask God, is this what you're calling me to? Hopefully none of you are sitting here going, I wish I had considered that calling before I was married. But what do we have? We have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot. And the Ethiopian eunuch is doing two things. Number one, he is driving away from Jerusalem. And number two, he's reading the scriptures specifically Isaiah. Why did he make the pilgrimage? He made it to worship and to pray. To go into the temple and to pray out loud to God and to worship God and to be there in the temple where God's presence dwells over the Ark of the Covenant and it's there where God's presence is so that's why he went there. But it tells us that he is leaving and he's reading Isaiah and his head is filled with questions. I want to say this and I want to say it carefully. Change does not happen just because you change locations. It doesn't. Even Jerusalem. I've been to Israel several times. And having been there, there are people that go to Israel and they think just because they walked where Jesus walked that somehow they're going to have some massive life transformation just because they walk where he walked. That's not how it works. As a matter of fact, this guy goes to Jerusalem and he's headed back and you can sense his questioning and his frustration. Let me put it this way. I'm just going to use the college students for an example. Some of us, some of the college students that are part of City, 
Maybe you're a first year. When you came to grounds, you said, you know what? There are certain things in my life that I know need to change. And when I get to UVA, when I get on grounds, I'm going to do it differently. And the problem is you've already found out that environments don't change people. It's not how it works. And then some of you who are upperclassmen, you've been saying that for two or three years. You've come back and you're in your third year and you've said, you know what, this time when I get to UVA, I'm going to get to grounds and I'm going to do it differently and within two weeks, same patterns. You know what the problem is? It's not the environment, it's you. We're going to get back to that in a moment too. But here we have a guy that makes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and what we discover is he's leaving frustrated. But then all of a sudden, something happens. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. And when he's reading from the book of Isaiah, God, because he loves every single person, takes Philip out of a full-blown revival, has him stand in the intersection in the desert, and the two of them meet. And what we find is, is that you've got the eunuch riding in his limousine. And he's reading the book of Isaiah in Philip's running next to him. But I want you to notice what it says. The angel of the Lord made him leave Samaria and walk out into the desert, but it was the Spirit of God that told him to get next to that chariot and run next to it. You see, this eunuch is leaving Jerusalem, and he's reading the Scriptures And as he does, Philip is invited to come sit next to him, and Philip asks him this question, what are you reading? Do you understand it? Now, what's truly stunning is the passage the eunuch has focused on. Here it is, Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from earth. And in verse 34 of Acts 8, the eunuch says to Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Why? Why is he vapor locked on these verses? Why is he drawn to them? I'm going to tell you why. Because of Deuteronomy 23.1. And in Deuteronomy 23.1, there's what's called the exclusion from the assembly. People who are not welcome on the temple mount to worship. Here's the first exclusion. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. You see what's happened? The eunuch made a 1,500-mile journey, and when he got to Israel, he was not welcome. He spent his time in Jerusalem looking through the knothole of the fence. He would say to people when they left the temple, what happened? What's God doing? What is his presence like? Who is he? Explain him to me. He's not welcome. He can't go in. You see, the holiness laws of God say certain people are not allowed in worship. And again, 
admirably. He gets as close as he can, but he's still not in. Do you want to know why he's looking at that scripture? Because he sees himself. But if he would have read three chapters further, and I guarantee you he already had, he would have read the following from Isaiah 56, 3 through 7. I want us to read it together. It says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. In other words, there will come a day when no eunuch will complain, I have no children. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. You see, the foreigners weren't allowed either. So the eunuch has a problem. Not only is he a eunuch, he's not welcome in. He's also a foreigner. He is not welcome in. It's a double whammy. He simply cannot go in. But Isaiah 56 says, there's going to come a day where that will all change. It will all change. And the eunuch will be so connected to God that they will no longer look at themselves shamefully and say, I am a dried up tree. And God says, through the prophet Isaiah, there will come a day when that individual who is the foreigner and the eunuch will have a name in the house of God, which is better than having sons or daughters. Why has the eunuch focused on Isaiah 53, 7 and 8? Because of verse 33 in Isaiah. It says, in his humiliation he was deprived of justice, and who can speak of his descendants? You see, the eunuch has now found himself in Scripture. He reads that passage in Isaiah, and he says, that's me. That's me. You see, here's a guy whose descendants have been cut off. He has no children. He's been humiliated. And even though secularly, the eunuch is somebody, sacredly, he's a nobody. And yet, here he is. He has left worship and prayer. He has not been welcomed in. But as he's reading in Isaiah, he reads the outline of his own life. He goes, oh my goodness, there's someone else who will not have children. No one can speak of his descendants. He's been cut off. And what does it say? That he says to Philip, you got to tell me. Is this about Isaiah, or please tell me it's about someone else? And the scripture tells us that Philip begins with that passage, and he says, you're never going to believe it, but that person is Jesus. He never had any earthly children. He never did. His descendants, no one will ever speak of them. 
He was humiliated. He was cut off. And when you look at that passage, you begin to recognize that it's a prophetic passage in the book of Isaiah that pole vaults over history and points straight at Jesus. And there in that moment, the Ethiopian eunuch goes, that's me. It's me. I'm actually in Scripture. He finds a kindred spirit in Christ. Isn't it amazing that a man who is out twice, he's a foreigner and he's a eunuch, meets Philip, and when Jesus is explained, he's in. Now notice this. When we always talk about feet to our faith, notice this. Notice what happens with the Ethiopian eunuch. I want you to catch this. As he's traveling along the road in verse 36, it says, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Trust me, it's a test. He's looking at Philip going, really, Philip? You're trying to honestly say that I'm in. I've always felt out. I've always felt like I was on the outside. Now you're honestly telling me that I can be in. What does the Bible say? They get out the chariot. They get into the water. And Philip baptizes the eunuch into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Ethiopian exit scripture stage right and it says he is rejoicing. He's rejoicing. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, he has found transformation in his life. And he is eternally changed. How did the process happen? Well, you had the Ethiopian caught in an in unthinkable scent of circumstances that mean that he is out. He's reading the scriptures. Someone comes next to him who understands the scriptures. They journey together in the same spiritual direction. And the Ethiopian eunuch leaves. And he is changed. He is transformed. I want to tell you this. That's how change happens. Always has. Always will spiritually. It begins with a person who begins to look at Scripture to figure out who God is, and every single person eventually finds themselves in the text. Every time. And when you find yourself in the text, you go, there I am. It's me. I can't believe I'm finding myself. And then the Holy Spirit shows up, begins to work in your heart, and then you begin to journey with people in a common spiritual direction and you discover what it looks like to follow Jesus and to serve others. I want to encourage you, if you think about yourself spiritually as someone who's out, do you know why this story is included in the book of Acts? Because no eunuch comes to faith in any of the four Gospels. None. But now there is one. And everyone who read about the eunuch being in knew exactly what was being said. Life would never be the same again.
if the eunuch can be in who's a foreigner, anyone is welcomed in. I want you to recall that the eunuch was leaving worship and prayer. He had gone to the mountain of God and was rejected. You can't come in. You're unwelcome. And he looked through the knothole of the fence, longing to be in God's presence and to worship and to pray. Now he's in. The book of Acts tells us when he exits, he's rejoicing. You know what I think he was doing? He was worshiping. And he was praying out loud because his life had been fundamentally transformed. As we close out our time, I'm going to ask that you would please stand with me. And as we stand together, we are going to conclude our time with a moment of worship and a moment of prayer. This time of worship and prayer will be a little bit different than others. It's going to be a little bit different. What we're going to do in our time together is we're going to begin to worship like we always do in response to the sermon. But then what we're going to do is there's going to be an opportunity for you to pray. For you to pray. Oftentimes prayer at City Church is kind of monologue, just like Pastor Keith did. He got up here, prayed a gorgeous prayer over us. But I believe change really begins to happen when you pray. His prayers are awesome. God hears and responds. But there's something about you. There's something about me in the midst of worship when we begin to pray as individuals. I believe that God's presence is here. I believe that during our time of worship and prayer, Pastor Stephen is going to lead us. There's going to come a point in time where there will be a lull in the music and you have an opportunity to pray. Some of you, I want to encourage you to pray out loud. Don't do it to get attention for yourself. But I'm going to challenge you to pray out loud. Dear God, I need change in my life. Dear God, I have a friend that needs change. God, I need a sense of you leading and guiding and direction, all of those things. But I want to encourage you that in that moment of worship where it lulls a little bit, I want to encourage you to pray out loud. Ask God for change. Invite the Holy Spirit in and through your life to transform you. Let's worship together.